Amen. How do we not pray after a song like that? Let's go to God in prayer. Our God, our Father in heaven, Father, you are awesome. Father, you are amazing. God, you are our provider. You're our protector. You're our deliverer. God, we love you. Father, we come before you this morning to praise you, to honor you, to give you the glory you deserve. We thank you and pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Great to be here. Thanks for coming to church on Super Bowl Sunday. You know, you could be a lot of places, but you chose to be at church. People are watching right now all the pregame coverage. They're starting to party early, right? And if you're visiting with us, we just want to say thank you for coming, for devoting time to the Lord on a, a day where our country is focused on football. Now, I love football. Football's great. And actually, I don't know if you realize this, but there is a prophecy in the scriptures about this game today. And it's in Daniel chapter 8, I kid you not, verse 7. It says, I saw the goat attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. Now, I am by no means a Patriots fan. That's all in jest. That's actually not really a good interpretation of scripture. That is not a prophecy. You're gonna be like, man, that church teaches false doctrine. What is that guy talking about? You know, you probably need to study out Revelation a little bit more to understand even what that scripture is talking about. Uh, However, I know it's a big game. Anybody in here a Patriots fan? All right, sorry about that. Anybody a Rams fan? Anybody, is anybody rooting for the Rams to root against the Patriots? Is anybody else tired of seeing the Patriots in the Super Bowl? Maybe that's just me. I am a Giants fan. But in general, I like to root for the underdog, don't you? I like to root for the person that's not normally there. I like to root for someone who's who's an underdog. And so either way, really what I'm hoping for is just a great game. Please, God, I do not want it to be like the scripture says. If you're visiting today and you're new here, I want to say this is also, I'm new here. This is only my third Sunday. And so we're new here. We could be new here together. My wife and I, we just moved here from New Jersey. I know it's the butt of every joke, right? It's like Jersey, you know? It's like every Broadway show, it's like there's some Jersey joke in there. Uh, But we did move here from New Jersey. But we're very excited to call Manhattan our home. And we're loving it so far. It's incredible. I want to thank you for making us feel welcomed. And uh, this is a little family picture of us. We can move it to the next slide. Go back. It's our family picture. And that's, uh, that's my daughter, Emmy, my son, Thor, and my wife, Manami. We moved three days after Christmas. So there was Christmas, a couple days of packing, and then we moved. It was crazy. I had the flu, the kids got sick, and it was a a crazy time. But that's how bad we were excited to come here and be here with all of you. Is we were like, we gotta pack our bags and move over there ASAP. We know many of you guys, and many were looking forward to getting to know. 
You know, in this photo, my daughter, she's right here. She's our little princess. She's doing costume changes every five minutes. She's like, I want to change into my bell dress, and now I want to change into my aerial dress. She loves princesses, and you'll probably see her around here, maybe even up on the stage, singing Let It Go. And then my son Thor, he's just happy to be here. He's just excited about life. He's like got the joy de vivre. He's just uh, happy to be existing right now and just loves eating baby mum-mums. I was called into ministry about 10 years ago on Martin Luther King Day. It's incredible, it's Black History Month. And uh, it was in 2009 by mentors of mine named Damon Curtis and Larry Craig. And so every January, February, I get a little bit nostalgic and I think about these last 10 years and the significance of being called into ministry, which is a career of service, on a day of service that honors a great hero in American history. But the truth is, if I'm honest, I never really wanted to do this. It's like, why, God, Lord, why did you make me do this? I never wanted to speak to people, get up on stage. I never wanted to be in the ministry. Really, what I ever, all I ever really wanted to do is play music. That's what I wanted to do. And God, in his infinite wisdom, he took me, one of the most selfish people in the world, and he put me into a job that requires an insane amount of selflessness, really just to chisel me down and to work on my character. And now I'm so grateful. I say that to my shame, but I love working with the church. It's incredible. What an honor. We have been chosen by God to proclaim the gospel, the good news about Jesus to New York City. What an incredible thing that is. Can you imagine? Can you believe that? God chose you to bear the gospel, to proclaim good news to people in the greatest city on the planet the center of the known universe. They say that the earth revolves around the sun, but actually everybody knows that the galaxy revolves, the universe revolves around New York City. (laughs) Do you think that God knows your name? I wanna say, if you're doubting, does God love me? Does God care about me? Does God hear my prayers? Don't doubt that anymore. Do you think God hears your prayers? Of course he does. You're his chosen people in this great city. And I believe that he hears your prayers and longs to answer them because he wants to see great things done in this city. So why am I here? Why did I come? I came here to learn. You know, I'm here to learn. I'm here to learn from you. I'm here to learn with you. I'm here to play a lot of great music. I'm excited about the things that are to come. People come to New York for all different reasons. Why did you come to New York City? What are you here for? I'm here to learn. Some things I've learned so far is that, is a few things I'll share with you. Street easy, the listings are often embellished, to put it mildly. I've learned street easy equals lies. I've also learned that a bedroom is actually a bedroom. It's like a room where you can only fit a bed. Or also, AKA, it's a closet. I've learned that flex means more money for less space. Flex actually is not what they tell you. You might think it's a certain amount of bedrooms, and it's not. They just put up a a wall. Uh, I've learned that New Yorkers are softies, especially if you're walking around with a baby strapped to you. Everybody is smiling at you. Everybody's like, oh, you know, he's so cute. I've learned that I've never been a hat person, right, because I don't want my hair to get messed up. (laughs) I have learned the importance of hats. I have learned that you need a hat, you need gloves, you need a scarf. It gets cold, you need your chapstick. (laughs) Chapstick equals life. 
I've also learned that you can ride the subway and then you can ride the subway. Like there are people that work it like a game. It's like, I'm gonna be on the northernmost car so that at this stop I can get out and I know where I'm going. You know, riding the subway, hopping to the express train, when you know that stuff, I mean, you're like working the system and it's incredible. It's like you could have a PhD in subway. Science, sci it's like a science, it's like an art form for some, the express trains. You know, New York City, there are so many people in such tight quarters. And what happens is that sometimes we see some public displays of anger, don't we? It's like, you know, we're around and we see people getting upset, getting frustrated. I was like, the other day, I'm trying all these new experiences. So I'm like, let me go over to my local library. So I went to Bloomingdale to the public library. And I come in and I'm sitting down and this guy is like super frustrated and he walks over to one table and that, you know that one person that's like spread out over the whole table and he comes to sit down and the dude does not move anything and so he's upset already and so then he comes and sits down at my table fuming and then he starts to pull out some food and he's eating and you're not supposed to eat in the library, everybody knows that. And so this guy, the security guard comes over and he's like trying to tell this guy stop eating and they, they get an altercation. And then you've got this woman who, you know, when they're on your phone and all of a sudden the, you know, the music on the video that you're playing starts blaring really loudly. So people are like shushing her. And then there's a homeless guy that's in there and he's talking about the meatball and the meatball man and the meatloaf. And I'm like, what's going on? It's very easy to get angry. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? What grinds your gears? What gets you wrapped around the axle? Or as Denzel said, and remember the Titans, what overcooks your grits? Now you might be surprised to learn this, but did you know that Jesus got angry? Jesus got angry. I don't know what you're coming in here thinking your picture of Jesus is, but he wasn't just this happy-go-lucky guy all the time. He got angry. Let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. The Bible says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You know, I appreciate this series about making your mark and last week talking about the authority of the word. God's word is powerful, isn't it? God's word is incredible. This is only six verses, and there's so much to pull out of it. There is so much power in God's words. As I was preparing this, I thought, this is only six verses of the Bible, and there's so much in there. Now, a quick summary is that Jesus walks into a synagogue on the Sabbath, and we'll explain some of those things in a bit, and he sees an issue. Jesus comes in the synagogue, sees an issue, and he sees a need, and so he heals a man with a shriveled or a paralyzed hand. Now to understand what's going on, there's a little bit of background that we need. So what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath was a big deal in Judaism. You know, the Sabbath was a day of rest. 
It was a mandated day of rest, right? No work where everyone was supposed to rest. Does that sound pretty good to you? That probably sounds really good, right? I, just a whole day. No, nope, honey, can't do that. Supposed to rest. Can you? No. Nope. Can you help with? No. Nope. It's the Sabbath. You know, do people ever even stop working in New York City? There are some people that they're just working and working and working. And so I think God, he knew that our human nature, we're workaholics, aren't we? Sometimes we won't stop. There's something that feels good about work. That's a whole other study. But God told his people, you know, I need you to rest so you can focus on me. A great thing, right? But to give you a little perspective about how serious they took the Sabbath, there was a man in Numbers chapter 15, verse 32 through 36. You can write it down and go read the story. A man was stoned to death for gathering firewood, right? Doesn't exactly make you want to go camping. This guy, he was gathering firewood, and they stoned him because he was doing it on the Sabbath. That's how serious they took it. Now, on the Sabbath, people would go to the synagogue to worship God and discuss the scriptures. It was a place of learning, a place where people would sit and discuss. It almost kind of sounds like church, doesn't it? It's a place where people go to worship God, to talk about the scriptures, to learn and transmit ideas, and in walks Jesus. Now, right away, when Jesus walks in, there's people that want to accuse him. You know, and their accusation is that he was going to heal on the Sabbath. So how did they know that right away what he was going to do when he walked into the synagogue was going to be healing? Well, that's because way before Taylor Swift, Jesus had a big reputation. Big reputation. <laughs> Jesus Christ, he got a big reputation. Aww. Way before T-Swift, everybody knew Jesus' reputation. How could Jesus not go in and heal somebody? So before he even walked in the door, they knew that he was going to come and do something to help somebody. His reputation preceded him. He healed people. That was his MO, his modus operandi. They knew if Jesus saw the man with the shriveled hand, he would do something about it because that's the kind of savior that we have. When he sees needs, he rises to meet them. You know, it's already three chapters in, only three chapters, and he's already making a crazy impact, making his mark. He's got a reputation. People are trying to trap him because they knew that he was going to do this. And when you're living a life of impact, people are going to oppose you. You ever feel like Jesus here? You know, it's kind of like one of my favorite characters here. You ever watch Star Wars? It's like, it's a trap, right? <laughs> Jesus was walking into the Admiral Akbar trap, right? Like in Return of the Jedi with the uh, Death Star. It's a trap. You know, Jesus walked into traps. People were trying to trap him. You ever feel like that? They thought, we've got him now. But look what Jesus does. Does he run back out of the synagogue? Is he afraid? Is he fearful? Jesus did not run. Jesus didn't cower in fear. You know, Jesus was a performer. And so Jesus actually put on a display in front of everybody. Jesus puts on a show and he goes, stand up in front, right? So they say there's a man with a shriveled hand and he says, stand up in front. Now this is a modernization. They're probably in a synagogue. The way that it worked was people kind of sat more in a circle. And so most likely what Jesus had said was stand up here in the middle, in the middle of everybody so everyone can see what I'm about to do. Jesus was showing people his power. He was performing. And Jesus was bold, right? Take some courage to say, I'm going to stand up in the middle of you guys and show you something. Anybody like the center of attention? Or do we like to sometimes, you know, be towards the sides and be able to watch, right? It's much more comfortable to be around the edges of the synagogue looking in. But Jesus was bold and courageous, and he stood right in the middle. 
and he silences them with a question. He says, which is right to do on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, right? It's a pretty simple question. Jesus was the master of asking questions. And he knew how to ask a question that would shut somebody up. Oh my goodness, right? This question was basically like, look, is it good to do good or do bad? Well, if I say do good, then if you heal them, then you're in the right. But if I say that to do bad, then I'm saying do bad things, right? How does that even make any sense? Jesus was so crazy in how he would disarm people with a question. I think sometimes we want to argue back and forth with somebody when we need to be asking more questions. The Bible says he was angry. Jesus got angry. Now you might say, whoa, hold on a second. Jesus got angry. Well, how's that supposed to work? I thought Jesus was sinless. I thought Jesus never sinned. Isn't anger sin? Well, let me tell you, this was what was called indignation. And indignation is righteous anger. Did you know righteous anger exists? That you could be angry about something and that could be a good thing? Did you know that it's actually not sinful to be angry, but it's what do you do with that anger? It's what is the object of that anger? Where is the heart that that anger stems from? It was directed, see, Jesus' indignation, his righteous anger, it was directed not towards people, but towards sinful attitudes. It says he looked around, you know, and he was disturbed. It was about their hearts. It was the condition. It was that there was somebody that needed help, and they weren't doing something about it. The other thing that made Jesus' anger not sinful was that it was under control completely. You don't see Jesus, you know, punching walls. You don't see him kicking stuff. You don't see him throwing things, throwing plates, the way that the world gets angry. And what did Jesus get angry about? In this situation, he was angry about misplaced priorities. He was angry about a lack of compassion. Jesus was angry about apathy. When someone just does not care, about the plight of another human being right in their midst. What do we get angry about? If I'm trying to be like Jesus, what do I get angry about? What do you get angry about? You know, so often we get angry about things that affect only us, right? I get angry when I feel like I am mistreated. I get angry when I feel like I have been slighted. I get angry when I feel like there's some kind of unfairness going on. You know, we just moved to Manhattan and it's been about a month. And so I'm starting to try to figure out my routine, what I want to do. And I'm like, you know, I got all this energy. Okay, you know, I want to go to the gym. And so let me go to the gym. I want to work out a little bit. You know, it's really nice sometimes to go to the gym, to work out, helps you feel better. You can let off some steam. And so I'm looking for my gym bag. I find my gym bag because I want to bring, you know, my my wallet and my keys, but I want to make sure I'm secure. So I got my combo lock. And so I'm digging around in my bag and I can't find my combo lock. And my first thing that I jump to is like Emmy, right? Because my daughter, you know, kids are really funny because they find your stuff and then they take your stuff and they put it into like really random places. It makes no sense, right? And they, they bring objects from all over the house and they'll put it in a bag. I'm going shopping, right? <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye, daddy. I'm going shopping. And then it's like, I, I have to look through everything to find it again. It's like impossible and you're spending all this time. So I really want to go to the gym. I have like a certain window of time. I'm looking for my combo lock. And I'm like, so the kids are asleep in their bedroom. And I feel like my life is like the quiet place. And so I'm trying to walk through and I'm like, shh. Don't make a sound. 
and so it's dark, I can't turn the lights on, and I'm in the dark looking through different stuff, trying to find this combo lock through different bags that she's put things in, and I was getting upset. I was starting to get frustrated. You know, I was getting like, okay, what did she do with it? Now it's messing up my flow and the thing that I'm trying to do. And finally, I'm just like, you know, whatever. I'm just going to go to the gym. And I'll just keep my stuff in my pockets. I won't deal with the bringing in my bag or whatever. So I kind of like, you know, decided let me cut my losses. And as I'm walking out the door, I look in my gym bag one more time. And you know how there's like a flat part of the bag? This like a divider that helps those kind of like material bags to like have a solid bottom. Well, actually, I, I was like, wait, there's something under this. And so then I reach kind of around and I'm like, oh, there it is. And here I am getting so upset at my own family, feeling like, what did you do with my stuff? Only to realize, well, I just didn't check well enough in my gym bag for my combo lock, you know? We get so easily angry. I sat there, I'm like, I'm on the train. I'm just like, oh, I'm such a sinner. I just sat there like, God, I need your grace. Please help me because I'm just, you know, getting upset over, you know, silly, stupid little things. I'm always impressed with Jesus and how he was able to navigate some very difficult situations. Do you ever feel like people are trying to trap you as a Christian? Do you ever feel like because of your faith, because of what you believe, that when you walk into your job, that when you walk in, maybe you walk in at home and it's from your own family. Maybe it's with the people that you're around. Maybe it's the people at school, in your campus, at NYU, Columbia, at your college. You ever feel like people are trying to trap you just for being Christian? For me, being in the ministry is like being in a fishbowl. Everybody looking inside and watching you. You know, people look at your life. They judge you. They criticize you. When you get up to speak or you get up to sing, everybody's got an opinion about what you said or what you did or how it went, you know? There are people that just sit back and criticize. But what I love about Jesus is that he didn't focus on the critics. Jesus' focus was not on the critics, but it was on the man who needed help. Jesus was not a people pleaser. Jesus made his mark by meeting needs that no one else could. Mm. Now look, I'm not Jesus, and I want to tell you that. I know I just moved here, but I have a lot of imperfections. And I'm a sinner just like all y'all. And I just desire deeply to be like him. But sometimes, as, as many of you know, we fall so short. I'm a human being, I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I don't always say everything perfectly. And all I ask for is grace and the benefit of the doubt. Isn't that what we need as brothers and sisters in Christ? We need grace from each other. We need the benefit of the doubt. We need to say, you know what, I heard some of this, but let me go talk to him because I don't know. And even when I approach someone, do I approach them in a combative way? Or in an argumentative way? Or like Jesus, do I come with a question? Hey, so what was going on there? What did you think about that? Or, you know, did you say something like this? Or were you over there? What were you doing? Now, moving on, it's interesting to me the location of the man with the shriveled hand. You know, sometimes you think about situations in the Bible and you have to put yourself in there and picture what it was like and where they were. And this man with a paralyzed or shriveled hand He was not sitting outside on the way to the synagogue. He was not around the corner from the synagogue. He was not down the street. He was not outside. He was inside the synagogue. Think about the significance of that for a second. The Bible's crazy. Just one word that you can pick out and realize, man, that's a big deal. He was in the synagogue. He was in there. In the same way, we have issues in the church, don't we? We got issues in the church. 
And you know why? Because you're in it. Because I'm in it. We have issues in the church. I find it funny when people are surprised by this. When they think, oh my gosh, it's the church. I can't believe somebody's in. We're a bunch of sinners. You know, we'll, and so then people will start to say they'll be surprised, they'll be upset, and then we don't talk about this enough. We don't do that enough. You know, maybe those things are true, but what are you doing to change that narrative? You know, are you critical or are you constructive? I know there's constructive criticism as well, but are you mainly critical or are you, you know, constructive in your criticisms? Are you trying to make it better? Or are you just a naysayer sitting in the back doing nothing? Before Jesus arrives, what was everyone else there doing? Nothing. They were doing nothing for this guy. They were sitting around, and here he is with a disability. They were doing nothing. The one point I have today is that action amplifies impact. You want to talk about making a mark, action makes a mark. You got to do something to make a mark. You can't just sit around and talk. You got to go out. You got to talk to people. You got to serve people. You got to roll up your sleeves. While everyone else was sitting around and talking, Jesus came in and he took action. If we want to make a mark like Jesus, it's going to take action. You know, mere talk makes no impact. We can sit around for days talking, we should do this and we should do that, or someone should do this, someone should do that. One thing I love about this church is that we are a people of action. And I want to encourage you guys, because you guys, you get out there. You guys take action. You guys want to go out and do something. We walk the walk. And I want to lift up many of you who every day, out there in the streets and on the subway and on the bus, walking around at your jobs, you're walking the walk. And you're trying to treat people like Jesus would have treated them. You're turning the other cheek. You're loving people who treat you poorly. That's what Jesus was all about. We got our issues. But I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. One, my worst day in the church is better than a million not in the church. Does that make sense to you guys? My worst day here, I would never want to leave God. We have our issues, but we're striving daily to be like Jesus. So what does that mean? Let's get practical. What action can you take this week to amplify your impact for Jesus? I want you to go back, think about what can I do? What's an action? What's something that I can do to amplify my impact for Jesus? Think about doing something for someone else with no benefit to yourself. Actually, maybe the action that you take, it might even inconvenience you. And that's what Jesus said, unless a single seed falls to the ground and dies, it will not bear any fruit. You know, we want to see all these things happen, but we don't want to be inconvenienced. Well, I hate to break it to you, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to get in a situation that's uncomfortable. You're going to have to do something that that is at a cost to you if you want to see the gospel advance in New York City. Maybe it means serving someone in need on the street. Maybe it would be sharing your faith with a stranger on the train. Maybe it's inviting that coworker that, you know, you've been a little intimidated by, a little scared to share your faith with, a little bit scared to talk about the gospel to them. Maybe it's, in, it's encouraging someone, lifting them up with your words. Maybe it's talking to that kid at school for our teens, for our youth, and for campus. Maybe it's talking to that person at school that nobody talks to. Jesus made his mark one person at a time. 
He made his mark one person at a time. Maybe you don't know if you want to make an impact for Jesus. Maybe you're here visiting and you're not sure, what do I believe about the Bible? What do I believe about Jesus? I want to encourage you to take action and ask someone to show you the scriptures about Jesus to help you to learn more about him. And I think that's an action that will amplify your impact to figure out, do I even want to do this? Now, at different times, what I love about the Bible is you can insert yourself in a story, and maybe one day I feel like Jesus in this story, another day I feel like the Pharisee, another day I feel like this person, another day I feel like that person, right? You could be somebody different, and that, in that way, the Bible is alive and it's active. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like the man with the shriveled hand. Yeah. Maybe not even figuratively. Maybe you actually have a disability, something the world would call a handicap. You know, maybe you're dealing with a chronic injury, something that you feel very limited by. And that could be very discouraging. What I want to encourage you with is that while everyone else wants to sit around and talk, Jesus sees you. Jesus cares about you. Jesus values you. And he loves you. Now, maybe you feel like this man, not in a real physical way, but in a figurative way. Maybe you feel deformed on the inside because of sin. You know, sin is harmful. And sometimes there are sin... There is sin that it gets a hold in our life, and it's something that we can have trouble shaking. And it can really be debilitating. It can deform us, make us feel guilty, keep us from interacting with other people. Maybe you feel paralyzed, powerless, hopeless, ashamed about your sin. How can I change this? And I want to say that there are things about us that only Jesus can fix or heal. We've got great intention, brothers and sisters, that can help direct us towards Jesus, but it is Christ who has the power to heal us spiritually. You know, we've got to take action, much like the man who was healed in the story. See, he had his part because he got to the synagogue. Some of us, we got to get to the synagogue. We got to get to the place where we're going to interact with Jesus. We got to get to the place where he actually can be there to heal us. Go to where you'll find Jesus. As we transition right now towards communion, this story, can you believe this is only six verses? And we're not even going into like all the other stuff that's there. I mean, it is deep. It's crazy. The Bible is amazing. This story kind of ends in a very strange way to me. You ever think about the ending of this story? You know, wouldn't you expect somebody gets healed? What do you expect at the end of a story where someone's healed? Celebration, Celebration right? Let's rejoice. Let's get excited. We're going to slaughter the fattened calf, baby. Let's have some steak. Let's have some brisket. But that's not what happened. A miracle happened. This man's life was changed, but the reaction of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they were blinded by hate. They already had something they were seeing before Jesus came into the situation. They had already had their mind up. They were not open-minded. And so rather than making a mark, they missed the miracle. See, sometimes we miss the miracles because we're already coming in with a certain assumption or a certain judgment. And so in verse 6, after doing a miracle, after healing a man with a shriveled or paralyzed hand, it says, what was their reaction? Not celebration. Let's plot to kill him. Let's kill this guy because he actually is helping somebody. That makes no sense. That makes no sense. This word in Greek is apolesosin. And this word, let's kill him, let's destroy him, it means to kill, to destroy, or to put down. This word, the context, is actually what they would use talking about an animal. They said, we're going to put him down. We're going to put him down for what he's doing, like an animal. 
This is God in the flesh. And their plot, their design, their scheme was to put him down like an animal. The irony of this all is that God's plan since the beginning of time was that the Messiah was going to be a redeeming sacrifice for sinners. What they had no idea, no clue, was that God was a million steps ahead of them. They wanted to do the same thing. Can you believe it? But the purpose was totally different. See, God and Jesus were plotting long before the Pharisees and the Herodians. They had schemes for evil, and Jesus and God, they had schemes for good. He one day traded his life to heal us, just like that man with the shriveled or paralyzed hand. Aren't we all in need of healing? Is there anybody that has not dealt with the harmful effects of sin in our lives and in our hearts? We can relate to this man with the shriveled hand. And God's plan since the beginning of time was to heal us through the cross. And it wasn't something that someone else plotted. It was his own design. He was way ahead of them. He's like, you don't realize what I'm about to do. I am going to give up my own life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The cross is the ultimate action that made the ultimate impact. You talk about making a mark. Jesus made his mark on history. And we saw the love of God amplified through all of time because he had an action that reverberated through history that was amplified. He took action. He gave his life. And it made an impact that led us all to be here together today. We're here because of what he's done 2,000 years later. Let's go to God as we pray for our communion today. Our God and our Father in heaven, we come before you so humbled, God. So humbled by your love for us, God. So humbled that you would care to give your life for us, sinners in need of healing, God. Sinners who we've been deformed by sin. We've been paralyzed. And you don't want us to live like that. You gave your life. You traded your life for us just so that we could be with you for all of eternity. We love you. We thank you so much for the cup, for the bread that helps us to reflect and remember your body and your blood that were given for us. We love you and pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.